Paul Urbino has been working in the field of aging for 30 years. As a boomer, his aging mantra is to always be open to learning from your elders. And incidentally, in his line of work, that's exactly what people do and vice versa. In the last few years, Paul has hosted the storytelling event, Bold Voices, that connects generations across the spectrum of their lives. This experience led him through the navigation of the pandemic as he sought ways to keep folks who were experiencing extreme isolation to remain connected to a community. This has led to his latest book, Covidology, Sharing Life Lessons from Behind the Mask. Join us as we discuss the resilience of the most vulnerable among us, the widely varying ways COVID has impacted people across generations and how fiercely protective Paul is of his storytellers, no matter what age they are. I'll be drinking Woodford Reserve Double Oaked Bourbon. What about you? I would like to welcome today my guest, Paul Arabino, who is an individual that I think will really our listeners will really gain some insight from due to his some of his projects that he's working on currently. So welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. And, and so I always ask two questions of every guest because uh, aging is such an important issue for me. What generation are you associated with? The short answer is the baby boomer generation because I was born in 1962. I just turned 60 last month. Oh my God. But the longer answer is the boomer generation is so long. It's a, it's a big, it really encompasses, I think, more than a generation. And I'm on the, the younger end of it, but I right. probably most uh, affiliate with the boomer generation. Yeah. And we've had guests that have, are like you on the younger side of the boomer generation. And honestly, I do believe that they have uh, different traits than the older boomer generation does. And that comes out in our discussions quite a bit. So do you have a personal philosophy on aging? I think I do. I think I've, I learn a lot from my elders. And so, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about this because I think the older boomers have actually helped shape my vision, my view of aging. And I like to, I like to think that I'm in the best stage of my life right now, now that I'm sort of semi-retired. Right. My philosophy is that it's real important to step into who we really are, our authentic selves. And I think aging allows us to do that. So I know that you're, you, uh, the personal philosophy of, of uh, aging, has it shaped your work or your projects or your transitions? Absolutely. I worked in the field of aging for almost 30 years and I wanted to, but I was a bureaucrat, but I really wanted to do more artistic, more creative, more storytelling. And I was able to do that a little bit towards the end of my career, but my focus really is um, on aging, uh, especially especially LGBTQ plus aging. So I think that kind of I try to get the stories out there that are not the sort of standard sort of cookie cutter, you know, um, stories of aging, the good, bad and the ugly. So I, I think yeah. that has has shaped me. And I also feel real importantly about getting um, other um, communities, uh, stories out there. So people of color, people from marginalized communities, and there's also a lot of overlap between these uh, forms of identities, but definitely older adults and LGBTQ older adults is definitely my sort of my main interest lies. Do you think there's a common theme across all the aging populations, the, the different communities on that, on that, including GLBTQ plus, uh, marginalized 
communities. Is there a common theme that goes through all of those aging communities? I, yeah, I think there is and there isn't. I think there is in the sense of, I think that we all want to sort of like age in place. We all mm -hmm. want sort of like, you know, a, a chance to be healthy. We want access to food and shelter and all those things that just kind of make us as people and to be able to demonstrate who we are in this world. And at the same time, it's not an equal opportunity paradigm. So right. many people who are lower income will often say, well, I would love to have something age friendly. I would love to have sidewalks. I'd love to not be in a food desert. I, but so there, so income disparities plays a role in that too. So I, I'm, I'm really trying to, to pay attention to um, how maybe marginalized and not necessarily marginalized because someone's a person of color or somebody's LGBTQ, but just also income. Right. Um, it really uh, impacts us and, and how we can sort of live our best lives. And, and I find that in, in my occupations doing that as well. The interesting thing is the we're in have better systems here in the Northwest, Oregon and Washington. I have relatives down in the Texas, Oklahoma area, and they are far worse uh, in aging than we are up here, primarily because of the income level. And so uh, I think we all need to be out advocating for those services to be brought about and to be included with the basic, basic rights. I totally agree with that, Gary. And I think we're very fortunate to be in the Northwest because I've heard those same stories. And at the same time, one of the, one of my areas of interest, which may be the next book I write, it, it's focusing on um, how to age creatively. So I, for example, I have a friend who's 80 years old, who lives in Bellingham, Washington, and he's on a very fixed income, social security, he gets SNAP benefits and he hires someone to, and he also gave up driving this year mm -hmm. because of safety issues issues. So he has someone that was working in his yard, he hired and he's like, Hey, could you take me to Winco every couple of weeks? And so they've developed this kind of rapport. And I was just talking to him last night and he's like, he goes to Winco and he has two lists. And he's like, here you go, Christian, you go over there and I'll take this. And it's just a beautiful thing where he right. kind of had to put himself out there. And he's working with this gentleman who's going to college and he seems very interested. So I'd like to sort of capture those stories of just right. like, yes, he has a fixed income. Yes, he's not driving anymore. And he takes the bus, it's free up there, but he can't lug those heavy groceries, right. you know? So he has this like once, uh, once a month or twice a month. So I, that's the kind of um, resilience that I like to see happen and sort of thinking outside the box. Exactly. And do you think that the integration of new services uh, such as uh, shopping online, doing those have added to the ability of, of us to stay uh, in one place? Yes and no. Um, I also see it through the lens of my aunts who are Filipino and English is not their first language and right. technology is just a huge disconnect. And so right. um, I will often like I'm with their permission, I have access to their medical records. I'm I'm in their sort of network, mm -hmm. because if you aren't on the computer nowadays, then you really struggle because right. they're like, well, I'll, I'll just call my doctor if I, I said, well, they're, they're really busy. And, you know, yeah. with COVID, there's just, so I think that there's a, been a lot of disparities. And it's one of the reasons why I wrote this book is that not everybody has access to technology. Not everybody right. has access to good technologies. But I think as the younger people come up and age in place, I think it's going to be a little bit easier. Well, I think it's certainly going to be different uh, <laughs> because they know how to work this the uh, computer system much better than I do. 
But, uh, so how has your personal journey evolved that has led you to this point in your life? Uh, that's a great question. I think I was, I was very engaged in my aging career and I have wonderful colleagues like yourself and others. And so that was just a positive experience. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I just wanted to, to go a little further and sort of figure out what that path is. And when I, when I retired, um, relatively young, I just wanted to sort of just be, and it took a whole year before I started like figuring out what that might look like and it's evolving all the time. So it's really trying to look at aging a little bit more differently and sort of getting out of my own way. Did did you find it more a freeing experience after you retired and, and aging? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so, so funny. By the time I retired, you know, when you work in, in government, there's just so much bureaucracy and it's not anyone's yeah. fault. It's like, so when I left, I found myself saying it must bring me joy. I'm <laughs> not going to work on that unless it brings me and others joy. No. And so when I retired, people thought, oh, and again, this is, shows you how ageism plays out in society. People are like, oh, you're, you're retiring. You're too young to retire. You need to do this and you need to be on this committee. And you need, I'm like, no, I don't need to be on any committee. I'm yeah. no more committee. So um, yeah. yeah, it was definitely very freeing for me. Well, good. And and ha- you found joy in everything you've done since then? Yes. And then one of the problems with that, and I'll be talking about this at the at the Van Talk soon, is that one of the problems with me is many things bring me joy, Gary. Lots of things bring me joy. And one of the things I'm realizing during the pandemic is I have to be a little bit more selective mm-hmm. about oh, not over uh, engaging, not over committing myself because, myself, because then that doesn't bring me joy when I have too many things scheduled. So I think I'm um, right. also coming to the point where I'm scaling back a little bit and being more intentional with my focus. Well, that's great. I have had to do that myself. I'm still working and doing that. But I think that it's it's a process to get to that point of realizing, you know, you do need joy in your life. And some things you just don't need to do if it doesn't doesn't apply. So what do you think would you say contributed the most to where you find yourself today? I would say that it's probably um, developing the self-confidence, developing the sort of inner realization that I wanted to do something more impactful, both for myself and the community, and to just mm-hmm. try new ways of connecting and engaging with community. Mm-hmm. And that brings me the greatest joy is I'll, I'll try it. And it's like, if it didn't work, it didn't work. Um, mm-hmm. But that's been very freeing for me to just sort of experiment stylistically with format, with the way people gather. And especially now with COVID, many of the things I'm doing are now going away from virtual to back in person or right. live streaming. And so it's interesting, I think, just psychologically to yeah. see that people don't gather in the same way. Things are just slowly shifting and to be able to gauge that and pay attention to where people's comfort level is. And do you think you you are very creative? Did do you have that creativity when you were working or was it there? And how did you express it during that time? Yeah, I, I think I definitely did. I would I did a lot of the educational stuff for the county. I did a lot of like LGBTQ 101 for staff. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of great work. And that's one of the things that I think was my hallmark is that when I retired, I already had a group of colleagues that said, oh, my goodness, you're retired. Can you do this for us now? So I've done a lot of work with right. like AARP Oregon and other uh, other counties, even the county I worked for, because it, I think it was 
kind of I find that storytelling is truth telling. And so there is a certain amount of, you know, how do I say, like there are some barriers that are lifted when people sort of just get to tell their story and then feed that into like the demographics or feed that into like what's happening. So I think that was my sort of calling card. I was able to do that, but it was sort of like that and about 47 other things. And so it was just always that kind of scrambling. Absolutely. So I've heard the word tribe mentioned, especially with the younger individuals and having their tribe together. And I, it, it's an interesting word, an interesting concept, but I think as we age, we need to have those support systems in place as well. So have you, you were t- alluded to that earlier about having colleagues and support on that. How does one build that type of tribe or support in their lives? Do you think? Um, I think it's a lifelong process. And it's one of the things I've been reflecting on a lot lately is um, I have this, the working title for the new book is going to be called like the bossy pants guide to aging. It's like, we have to be (laughs) bossy pants. We have to be um, putting ourselves out there. We have to interact with different generations. We have to maybe do things that take us out of our comfort level a little bit. So I think it's a lifelong journey, but I feel like as we age, and this is one of the frustrations I have in living in an ageist society is that we kind of become invisible and, you know, it's very easy to be dismissed. Like we're out of stock on that, sir. It's like, Hmm, like, you're not treated the same way and it feels disrespectful. And I think there's a lot of messaging around there. You know, like when you go to the store and they have all this new funky technology and you put your card in, they say, well, you're supposed to do this and that. And then, and it's like, it can be a little intimidating. Um, But I do find that when we gather, especially when I pull together older adults that have never met before, there is this kind of chemistry, this, this kind of magic that happens. And many of those folks are friends now where yeah. they, because they're leaning into some vulnerabilities, they're talking about sort of finding their power, finding their place in this world. And it's a very sort of intimate, personal journey. And that's been really beautiful to have that happen. Mm-hmm. So I feel really good about that. And even through some of the virtual groups I was doing during the pandemic. Some of those folks are friends now, they call each other, they gather. But I think we don't have a lot of good opportunities right now for older adults to do that beyond sort of like the senior centers and and things. There are some, but I think things are changing. Yeah, I think aging is one of those interesting processes. My mom's 92, she'll be 93 in November. She doesn't see herself as old at all. Well, I don't want to go down there and sit with those old people is what she told me the other day. Well, mom, you're probably one of the older ones. Oh, no, I'm not. The rest of the table mates are all in their 93, 94 or 96. And I went, well, yeah, but I I think it is a a perception out there uh, with younger generations, especially that just because you have white hair or no hair and you're a little older that that we're discounted yes uh, yeah. as individuals and i think that's becoming more and more prevalent uh, as i as we go forward um, but we do have a lot of wisdom and you've certainly tapped into your creativity to do that so storytelling is something that you've done for a while and you have what we call our bold voices and How does that fit into your vision, your overall vision for you? Yeah, um, it's kind of an extension of um, myself in a way in in terms of really uh, collecting my values and profiling um, these 
often unheard voices or underrepresented voices. And so I retired in 2016 and I dabbled in storytelling and I did some stuff, but it wasn't until 2018 that Our Bold Voices was formed. And our very first show was profiling um, women on International Women's Day. Mm. And of course, Stacey Rice, who was a recent guest, was one of mm. those women. So it was right. really this chance. And and all these women didn't know each other prior. So it's kind of what I was saying earlier that um, we, we, we did a lot of work together. And um, during you know the whole uh, Black Lives Matter, when it was really right. fresh, I'm like, we've got to find a way to elevate these voices. And I had grants. I had art grants that were on hold because they said, well, you can't do anything right now until COVID's over. Well, how long is that going to take? So I was able to seek their permission. I was able to do a couple of productions. And one of them was on Black Lives Matter. And we did, we had three uh, people of color talk mm -hmm. about their experiences and we had it in a webinar and people got to ask questions. And it was just so remarkable to have like these community conversations when everything seemed to be imploding around us and there was so much division that, um, well, we have three people of color right here. Why don't we ask them? And they right. put themselves out there in a way that I was I was so um, pleased to see. And what was strange about that is I had some storytellers over, this is during COVID, and I had little clusters of people and I planted the seed with one person and I said, what if we did? And she's like, oh, I'll do it. And then three or four days later, I had another small cohort because of COVID and it just came up naturally. And right. I said, what if we did? So anyway, that's how that came to be. I think stories, unlike facts and figures, it's just sort of like, tell me how you're impacted, because I believe that we have universal emotions. We all mm -hmm. know what it feels like to be disrespected. We all right. know what it feels like to feel othered. And so it was a, a wonderful way to be able to tap into sort of what was happening at that time. And one of our storytellers, um, Joshua Thomas, who's amazing, he's told story for me many times, was reflecting on what it was like to be an African-American man and seeing like this truck come by with these white guys. And I'm like, am I going to be chased? Like, has like this this physical you know reaction like am i gonna have to run am i gonna you know be targeted am i gonna be killed and that's that's just you know horrible and at the same time we have to let people know that this is something that people of color experience all the right. time and so it just becomes so much more easier to integrate in in the way that we see the world so do you find that the organic type of process works better if it's through the organic process, as you were saying. Uh, say a little bit more about what you mean by organic process, Gary. Well, the organic, you just allow it to unfold on its own. So that's what I mean by organic. Oh, yeah. Yes and no. So I have this thing in storytelling where I'll say it, it can be therapeutic, but not therapy. And so we have to sort of be mindful of the audience coming mm -hmm. and we don't want to expose people to something that can be traumatic. Right. So we we're always kind of look at that. But yes, it is very organic. And then they learn from each other. And so what right. happens is someone tells a story and then because it's in our head and then you might say, huh, I'm curious about when you mentioned ABC, like, what does that feel like for you? Right. And then the person gets to reflect on that, like, oh, so we find that there's these little hidden things that we're not hiding intentionally, but through that organic process of telling our story, we get feedback. It's like, oh, do you think that's relevant? And the group will say, yeah, I think that would really help your story. And that's where the bonding comes in. Right. And the other thing too, is like, we only have so much time. Like when I do uh, Van Talks in a few weeks, that's 15 minutes. 
minutes of like no notes. Right. I'm a little intimidated by that because I usually do six, seven, eight minutes. I do more of like what the moth does. Uh-huh. I might go a little bit longer. So 15 minutes is like, oh, like in some ways I could, you know, but that's not what I'm used to. So it's right. sort of like getting out of our own comfort zone. Some people are really attached to the paper and I'm like, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, during, um, I did a special one on the pandemic and one person has uh, long haul COVID mm-hmm. and she says, I'm never going to be able, I'm said, well, let's all just, we'll all use our paper. We'll all mm-hmm. read from it. So it doesn't make this person feel out of place, but right. to answer your original question, it's definitely an organic process with some guidelines built in. Good. And um I think through the storytelling, my indication is that the individuals that do the storytelling, it profoundly affects their lives. Uh, is that what you're experiencing as well? Yes, it, it affects their lives. And especially like if we have Q&A afterward or just, mm-hmm. you know, informally, it, it's very impactful because I think it allows them to sort of share something that's deeply personal to a group of strangers, right? right? And that's kind of what happens. And so it takes a lot of bravery. Not everybody can do that. And it's not a lecture. Like some people think, oh, I can I can talk about the pandemic and I can, but then it's like, well, I want to hear like your situation with the pandemic right. or you as an older, like how how is that, how did that manifest for you? But it's definitely very empowering. And many storytellers will come back and say, I want to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, let me know. And I'll say, well, I have a topic. It's around this. Are you interested? And Joshua, who I mentioned earlier, earlier is absolutely amazing. He takes it very, very seriously. Sure. And then we sit down and we, we practice, I get to listen, get some feedback, but I think it's, um, it's empowering for both the storyteller and the audience. Absolutely. And I think, um, especially under the black lives matter movement, which is much needed in this country still is just having that person voice what they feel when a, when a pickup of white guys drives by, puts things in a different lens or light for me. And hopefully the audience would feel the same thing Has the audience usually is ones that is very acceptable of, our, of the talks and doing that one. Do you have groups where they're, they're really just needing to understand or listen, or are they all pretty much in, in uh, favor of, of the comp of the discussion, I guess. Would be what I'd say. It's a good question. I think people come generally are, I would say, lifelong learners and they want to learn. And I actually just did this presentation um, for the aging colleagues and I was talking about LGBTQ folks and what what some of our historical oppression is. And one woman came up at the end and she said, I'm just so grateful because I think I've been doing it wrong all these years. (laughs) I (laughs) thought I was trying to be helpful, but I realized and she gave me a few examples and she's like, oh my goodness. And language changes so much. Absolutely. So my experience has been extremely positive and there have been times where there have been some microaggressions, not intentionally from the audience, but asking a question. And so especially if I'm going to do something like in a public space, in a library Mm -hmm. where everyone is welcome, I always have a chat right before we go on, I'll just say, if someone says something inappropriate, offensive, transphobic, homophobic, racist, whatever it is, that's on me. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to feel like you have to, that just causes so much panic. And it's happened a couple of times. And I think both times it was not intentional. 
Sure. And actually, sure. once it was in Vancouver, we're at uh, actually Canvas at a library. And in the story, I mean, the, the question came from like with all these trans people that are being abducted and murdered. And it was just like, oh, my God, don't don't do this. Um, aren't you afraid that you're going to get murdered? Something like I'm just being. Yeah. But that was kind of the tone. And you could just see like everyone was sort of at the microphone. Yeah. Everyone went back like this. And the audience was like and I just had to sort of in the moment say we're not going to we're not going to answer that question. Da, 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 um, but let's get to the next. So it just you just have to move it along because that that triggers a lot of things for people. Oh, and absolutely. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. So do you do uh, have younger audiences where they share these things, the Black Lives Matter? I'll use an example. Sure. Yeah. Younger Anglo individuals that really need to hear that. Do you did those individuals come to hear this type of of uh, Absolutely. I think the one that we did on, on the Black Lives Matter, it was primarily um, Caucasian people, white people okay. that came. And um, we also provided resources because one of the conversations we had was we don't want to have to like educate white people. You know, like there's a lot of information out there. There's work to do. So we had resources available that we sent to everyone that attended because right. we referenced some books and we didn't want to you know, stop and say, well, what about? So we had books and resources and classes and all of that. Um, but the questions were really profound in that um, people were asking, but what do you mean when you say such and such? Like right. I keep hearing this and I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what it was, but you know, what does that really mean? Right. Um, tell me more about that. And so then um, people are able to sort of speak at their own level of comfort. When we say this, we're really talking about this and this is how I feel about that. So yeah, it's just been really super impactful. Well, I think I just had an epiphany and that I don't <laughs> think I realized that you do a whole production. So you do the the thing with the, the resources out there. And really, so your your goal is not to not only inform, but provide support to change individuals' thinkings and minds. Is that a correct assessment? Of my yes. Um, so when I first started, um, I had sponsors and the sponsors helped um under you know that helped underfund the the or fund right. the pr production and then we would sell tickets and then we would have a nonprofit that we would donate that was sort mm -hmm. of um connected to the topic that people were speaking of and would give them like five or six minutes in the middle uh intermission to talk about their agency and the nice thing about that is that it helped profile nonprofits that don't get a lot of recognition right. that don't have a lot of awareness and at the end they were delighted because some people would just write a check that say how do i volunteer there was one agency that um was working with women that were incarcerated and they're like, how can we help financially? And they said, well, we have an Amazon, we have a list. So you don't have to come here and drop things off, but here are things that we always need for mm -hmm. the families. And they're like, oh my goodness. So I think it just makes it more accessible because like, I often find like, if you're looking for help, like you're just like, oh, I'm gonna, I need to raise money for such and such. It's like, well, what's what's the goal? What's the purpose? What, what can I contribute? And if you just break it down for people, like $5 will get us this, $10 will get us that. But that's been something that we are, always kind of mindful of like, how can we um, direct people to maybe nonprofits that could have a role in this without maybe sure. the sort of like the big agencies that we know, but this agency is focused on this right here, boots right. on the ground. Yeah. Right. And they can really use our support yeah. uh, to do that one. We're going to shift gears a little bit because you have a new book out. Yes. And, um, it just was published, I think. And uh, so it's called, um, COVIDology, Sharing Life Lessons from Behind the Mask. 
Is that correct? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the spark behind this, this anthology that you put together? Well, it was kind of random the way it happened, but, um, during COVID, especially early on, I started volunteering because the senior centers were closed. Right. Um, I had COVID at the time and everything in my life was falling apart. Everything that I had signed up to do disappeared, including right. this fan talk that was scheduled, yeah. everything in my life. And so I went into like this deep depression. I'm sick at home. I'm isolating and I have nothing to look forward to, like nothing. Yeah. And so finally, um, I was listening to my husband because the room I'm in right now, my husband like instantaneously in one day had to start working from home and he's an introvert, unlike yeah. me. Yeah. And I'm hearing, I'm on the phone, he's joking and laughing. And I'm like, is that my husband? Does he have a work personality? Like what? What happened? Who took my, so I was starting to realize after like sleeping 18 hour days, cause I was so weak, like maybe I need to sort of like interact with the world differently now. Cause right. everybody's on zoom. So I pitched this idea to the senior center. This is like late March. And she's like, yeah, we've been wanting to get a zoom account. And we were thinking about having some of this cause the center's closed now. So I bought a zoom account and I started offering zoom groups to older adults. Mm -hmm. And I started with the Tuesday group through Hollywood Senior Center. And when that filled up, like around eight, 10 people, because you want to keep it small, I started a second group and that was the Wednesday group. And they nicknamed themselves the, the geezers, the, the geezer group. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And then I had a contract with OHA, the Oregon Health Authority, because I do storytelling right. with long-term survivors of HIV. And they're like, guess what? Like the governor says things are shut down. So unless you can do something, I said, well, I'm having sort of, I'm starting to get success with this. So I started offering it to, to long-term survivors of HIV that were already experiencing isolation prior sure. to the pandemic. So um, long story short, I, I was doing three of those. And then I reached out to a director of an agency and said, what about the lower income people? I'm really concerned. Mm -hmm. And this person who I know and love said, you know, Paul, like the sky is falling. Like we are trying to do AARP tax aid remotely now, and we need to get volunteers. Mm -hmm. And, and I said, yeah, but what about all of these isolated older adults? They don't have. So anyway, she said, send me the bullets. I sent her the bullets. And then six, seven, eight months later, uh, she calls me and she goes, guess what? We now got some pandemic funding. It was supposed to go out like earlier in the year. And she goes, you have two months to spend it. And we wrote you into the grant. Can you start this for us? And so we did that. We had seniors come to the closed senior center and we did, it was like probably against the law. Don't tell anyone, but <laughs> we sat them down with younger, more experienced people. And we were able to get a cohort started. Now they have four, four of those oh. going. So these have been going on for a long time. And so when you ask the question, um, what happened was I was in this place since I'm facilitating all these, I learned so much about sure. older adult resilience and not everyone in all the groups were older adults, but the vast majority were, and many people didn't realize how resilient they were. So I thought that might make a good book. Uh, so I, I just reached out to people and we created an anthology that includes short stories and poems. And the stories are just like what we do with the oral tradition with the beginning, mm -hmm. middle and the end. And then there was so much interest that the library started asking us to, to do this. So we went to Bend a few weeks ago. I actually drove with Stacy Rice and we have an upcoming event at the Hollywood Senior Center next week and the Bend, I'm sorry, the Beaverton Library. So it's just, it's kind of taking a life of its own. Sure. And the feedback I'm getting is that people want like a new volume. They're ready for more stories. And I'm just totally blown away. I just did it just because I just wanted to see right. what would happen. And, and now it's kind of out there. So, so is there a common theme 
theme among the authors in the anthology about their experiences behind the mask and living with COVID? Yeah, I would say probably no. I mean, because we're all individuals and we've been affected by it so differently. So I guess the short answer probably is no, but I think what ties them together in all honesty is this each person dug really deep Mm -hmm. and was really focused on like what what that journey was like for them. And they're all so different. You know, like, you know, we had a death in one case. We had had so much isolation. Um, One person had to place her husband in a memory care unit during the time when we're worried that you wouldn't be see that person again. Mm -hmm. And this, this horrible feeling of like guilt and not getting any sleep and all the things that come along with placing somebody in memory care. But then like this extra burden, like, what if I just drop them off and I can't see him again? Mm-hmm. And so, so I think um, they really focus, I think, on resilience, um, gratitude, uh, connection to others, but they're all so different. And that's what's so beautiful about it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I was was looking at the authors and I, and I have ordered the book, so I will be reading it. Right. But I was looking at the authors and I was going, this is really a, a wide range of individuals, uh, age-wise, everything is in there that gives you a different perspective. So did they actually come away from their, their, their stories with being impacted by the lessons that they learned during COVID? Yes. And what's interesting um, is that no one knew each other prior. So it's similar mm-hmm. to the other events. I, I just reached out randomly. Not uh, everyone. They're all from different sources. I, I've done storytelling events of before so like stacy for example i knew through storytelling jameson green who's from vancouver also through storytelling so the vast majority didn't know each other but what was really fascinating to me is that when we're in bend we all met for the first time i mean i knew all of them but they didn't know each other so we're sort of like bonding and then the moderator started asking us questions and what we figured out was that was our truth at that time that's where we were when we wrote that story six, eight, nine months ago, but we've morphed since then. We've changed even more. And so one of our story, one of our storytellers who has asthma was just so panicked. Uh, and this person travels the globe for his mm-hmm. work. And it's like, I don't know if I could now. Um, he's like, I'm so glad I'm we're back to things now. And so he, he had more of like, I don't think I'm ever going to travel again because of this thing. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm traveling with caution. And even myself, my story that I told was true at that time. And then there's been other developments since then. So if I was to write the story today, it would read very different. But to answer your question, yes, I think there's each person really spoke their truth at that time, and it's pretty powerful. Well, that's that's great. And I think that these are individuals that had no previous uh, experience in writing these type of chapters or, or doing that. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, with the exception of Jameson, who is like a, a world-renowned renowned expert on trans men's health. He's written many, many, many things, but these are very clinical, dense medical stuff. So Mm -hmm. for him, what was interesting for him is he wanted to do something 
just the reverse. He just wanted right. to write this. So he has a lot of writing experience, but not with this, not yeah. with like telling a story. So that's what was a draw for him. But I think all of us were pretty much inexperienced writers. And we had two elders that live in Bellingham that would be coming down some of our events. They were the storytelling coaches. We all, myself and the two of them, we worked as coaches to say, what do you mean by that? And, and even some of the yeah. grammatical stuff. And, and even Jameson, who is very good, he'd put these long sentences because he's used to doing that. I'm like, this is not a clinical journal. So it was a lot of back and forth, yeah. but um, they're shaped really beautifully. And they're also different. And it's an easy read. You can read it like in probably one or two sittings. Oh, good. Now, I, I love the idea of having poetry and other things included in the book. How did the poetry affect affect the book? I mean, not affect the book, would affect me because poetry is very personal. It's very personal. And uh, truth be told, I, that wasn't my original plan. I thought there were going to be all short stories. However, when I did a storytelling event in Beaverton, I don't know, several months ago, I met a couple of storytellers who were performing with me and and one of them also writes poetry so Cher coleman is also a poet and she says what if i write a piece of poetry and i'm like okay and then someone who wasn't in the audience but got the the update the video of it she's a poet and she's like i write poetry so i'm like you're in uh it's very personal it's very different um and you don't as an editor, I don't edit it the same way. I mean, I'm just like, right. that. that's that's profound. That's beautiful. I think it adds a little levity to the stories. And we try to mix those in uh, throughout it. So it's not like story, 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 then like the poets, poetry right. at the end or the beginning. They're, they're kind of intermixed in with. Yeah. So we have three. Well, actually, we have three poets, but we have a total of, I think, maybe six poems. Oh, how cool. Um, because some of them wrote more than one poem. Yeah. Well, I, I I just found that to be uh, interesting, but what an impact that would have on on the book, I'm sure. Yeah. So did the differences of your individuals within the group make for a deeper, deeper, richer experience for you as the publisher? It did. It really, really did. Because when I would read the stories at, at first glance, I remember I'm like, oh my goodness, this is powerful. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. And one of our storytellers, he's the youngest one, Weston Anderson. He wrote it with sort of like this kind of sense of humor mm -hmm. that it, it's not in any of the other ones. There may be some humorous pieces, but it was actually really intriguing. It was like, almost like reading a children's book. It was just kind of this mystery that's going through and it has to do with the package. I won't say more than that, but it's like, what's in the package? Like, we'll never know. We're not supposed to open it. Ooh. And then and it's like, and then finally at the very end, you come to this like, okay, is he going to open it? And then what's in it? And that was just, so he actually, he, rather than when we did the event in Ben, rather than reading it, he actually just performed it. He just- yeah he just performed the story and it's just captivating. So I'm just so glad to have that in there. And the, right. the person who, um, interestingly enough, the very last person I got in there, it was an email. The one I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. she was placing her husband. She sent an email to like everybody that she knows. Cause most people didn't know just her inner circle. Mm -hmm. I didn't know she was placing her husband and I reached out to her and we talked for like an hour and a half on the phone because sure. aging is my background. I'm like, Mary, are you okay? And, and I said, I know this is like not a good time for you, but I'm writing this anthology and I would love to have this in there. And I said, I know you have no time. What if we just use this story? And she's like, well, I'm working on a second one right now. So what we did is we, we just used her emails 
as a story, uh-huh. like a modern day story. And it was so profound because she was not writing it for, she was writing it for her friends to explain right. the magnitude of what had happened with her husband and how to, you know, just do this during COVID. It was just incredible. And so I'm glad that she said yes, include it. So. Uh, absolutely. Well, what a gift. Actually, absolutely, yes, yeah, for us to be able to see that because, to be honest with you, I I don't remember there's books out there, but I haven't really met somebody that's really experienced that, and especially in COVID, makes it extremely difficult uh, to do that. And then you've got all the rest of the things, as you alluded to earlier, the guilt, not knowing whether you'll be able to see the person or not, and how that would interact. So, yeah, what a gift on that one. So how? Our Bold Voices has been out for a while. You've been doing that for a while. Mm -hmm. How has that impacted the community, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we impact community like one person at a time. I think the stories just resonate with people and we leave that on our our website and people sometimes will be searching something and all of a sudden I'll get a comment. We have our own YouTube channel. So I think it's, it's hard to say definitely in the moment, like when you're doing a live show, there's a kind of energy that is, I can't even explain it now that we're getting back to it. I'm starting to feel that again because I got, I kind of got like used to zoom like this and, but it never actually felt, I don't know, I don't feel as natural because I, you know, especially if you're doing a webinar, you you see the names and you say like, oh, okay, but I don't even, I can't see them. When you're in a live audience, it's just amazing. And, um, and then when you have the interaction with the audience, they'll come up afterward and they'll just say, oh my goodness. I I told a story one time about a, a suicide of someone who a young gay man who committed suicide a few days after Matthew Shepard was murdered. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a really hard story for me to tell. And I always, well, I never tell really, really deep stories like that. I, I'll say impactful stories, but this one I had to dig super, super deep. And I was surprised because like during the intermission, people came up to me and they felt the need to tell me where they were, what what their lives are like when Matthew Shepard was murdered. Similar yeah. like when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated, you know, like people, I, I was I was experiencing this and I was, li- I was living here and my roommates and I, so it just, it, it allows people to sort of like think and feel. And they say that storytelling affects the head Mm-hmm. the heart and the hands and the hands part is there's a call for action. Okay. It, this, it, 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 there's a call there. It's this intrinsic call to be able to share your story with somebody else sure. or to connect with somebody or to say, Hey, Gary, I was at this presentation and I think that you would have been moved by the story because this person said dot, 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 dot. And you're from Texas. And I was thinking, so it's, it's just, you just never know. And yeah. Stacy, for example, when she did her story, she had a lot of people come up to her. And then it was like a few weeks later, she was shopping in new seasons and just minding her own business. And the produce guy was there and he goes, Oh my goodness, are you Stacy Rice? And she's like, yes. And he said, I loved your story. And she's been a customer there for years, but now they have, he, he knows her story. Right. And he's like, that was just beautiful. Thank you for taking that. And she's like, Oh, thank you. And she looks down at his auto, you know, thanks auto. Like, thank you. Like it just connects us in ways that um, right. it's hard to explain. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about the bend experience um, over there, that was actually the first time you said that the authors had gotten together. Yes. And this was actually to a book signing. Was that correct? Yeah. So, um, 
so there was six of us who went, mm-hmm. including myself. Um, and at, at every one, there's going to be not all of them because we're just not going to have enough time. So six people right. volunteered, said, I'll go to Ben for the weekend. Yay. And so what we did is we did that remotely through Zoom. And we had, um, it was actually, I'll take that back. We had um, capacity to have a small number of people in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was so much a book signing as it was just to be able to connect with the writers. Right. Um, and those are smaller gatherings. The one that we're doing, the two that we're doing now with Hollywood Senior Center and with Beaverton, I have funding. So I have funding from the Beaverton um, mm-hmm. arts community. So we're going to give away free copies. So people oh. who come to Bend. We're going to have a reception for the authors following. So same thing with Hollywood Senior Center. We're going to be selling the books there and part of the proceeds will benefit the, the, the senior center. So I think those will probably serve probably more as like a book signing or traditional book um, mm-hmm. event. The Bend one, we planned it pretty quickly, but they really wanted to have it on their YouTube, which it's, right. it's living there now. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank and you. have you set the dates for the Beaverton and the Hollywood? Yeah. The, so the Portland, the Hollywood Senior Center one is um, October 21st. Mm-hmm. And the Beaverton one is the very next day, October 22nd. And two of our authors are coming up from LA, believe it mm-hmm. or not. And we have our two story coaches coming down from Bellingham. So I'm using part oh, of that wow. funding to bring them to Portland. So, and again, no, well, the six storytellers have met so far, but not all of them are going to right. all events. So um, most people will still not know each other except through reading the stories that, right. that they've had access to. Well, congratulations. Uh, on producing, thank our, you. I guess for coming up with the idea and doing this and allowing these individuals to share their stories. That's wonderful. How can myself or others uh, support your the bold voice mission and your writing? Is there ways that we wow. can do that? Wow, thank you. Um, I would encourage people just to go to our website. It's ourboldvoices.com. Okay. And we actually have a bullet there for COVIDology. Uh-huh. So all the things related to the book are there, where to buy it, um, just like behind the scenes stuff. And then we also have an author tab there. So if you want to find who the, find out, like if you want to see a picture and a bio for each of the authors and bios, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, most of them are Northwest writers, a few from LA. And yeah, and it's been interesting. I, I just got I, I, this is all new to me, Gary. So I got two five-star <laughs> reviews on Amazon. And I'm like, wow, I have no idea. Like maybe I should get hundreds, but, but each person really wrote to like how the book impacted sure. them. And so for me, I'm really curious, especially for people I don't know, it's like, how did the, did the book impact you? And if I did, how so? And yeah. that's the part that I'm, I'm always sharing with the writers because it was this collaborative effort. Yeah. Actually, I went on the website and looked at the authors because I, it was it was just so fascinating to me to see the differences and in the individual stories of the authors. So that's that was great. Uh, and thank you for having that up there. The last thing I think we, I'd like to say is how would you describe the future for you and for future generations and our current generation? Wow. That's a, that's a big question. Well, I definitely think that all of that is related to COVID. I think COVID has actually has impacted all of us to some degree, uh, one way or another. My fear is that we're moving a little bit more towards this technology realm. My fear is that, you know, I used to just like going to a coffee shop and sitting yeah. down and having coffee. And now we're seeing more and more of these drive-through coffee places. And like, what happened to the days when I, I started to sound like my father? You're like, what happened to the day when we could sit down and have a cup of coffee? It's like, so I worry, I'm hoping that that 
that trajectory changes yeah. that we can actually get back to more community spaces. Sure, um, sure. Um, but I think I'm hopeful for the future. I think that we can learn a lot from each other. And I think the more that we can connect the generations, um, the better we'll, we're all going to be because I think it's so easy to become detached sure. and to get into our own little bubbles with people our own age. So right. that's that's my hope for the future, that we can do more. One of the things that I'm finding interesting in my discussions about generation is the boomer, older boomer generation that experienced Vietnam, Kent State, all of that were very active back in their time. Now they're not. They've totally gone the other direction. And so, you know, I'm, I'm saying what happened to these activists of, of the boomer generation? Because I can remember they were out there as a kid mm -hmm. and I was going, oh, my gosh, to do that. So I'm I'm hopeful that maybe the younger generation will pick up some of the activism that the older generation and join them. Uh, the older generation will join to make some changes in our country uh, that we have and in the world. But I, I certainly hope so. Um, one of our authors is sort of an aside, but she is a lesbian and she was saying yeah. that she has a lot of older lesbian friends yeah. and they're always complaining. Why don't the young kids come here and clean my gutters? Why don't the young, don't they know that we stepped up and in the 1960s we marched? And, and so Carol, who's the author says, well, what are you doing to attract them? What are you, why do they want to come and clean your gutters? They don't even know you. What are you doing to put yourself out there? So right. I think it's, it's, a, it's again, as I mentioned earlier, we all have to get out of our comfort zone a little bit. Um, my friend, Jim, who's the, the person from Bellingham, he was one of our story coaches that the model that I explained earlier, it's like, he just had to do it a little differently and it works right. for him. And when he gave up his car, so many of his friends gave him crap for that. They're like, what do you mean? And he wasn't feeling safe driving anymore. He's got arthritis and a lot of conditions. He's not able to turn around. And uh -huh. like, he's just, he's just like, I don't feel like I want to drive. And a lot of his friends, especially one in particular is like, are you crazy? He says, what if I have a medical emergency? You can't drive here anymore to get, he's like, well then call 911. I can't, but it's again, we, we get into these little kind of clusters of people. We have to sort of, just experience a little bit more, myself included, right? Yeah, exactly. I am always challenging myself to, to mix with different generations. There's so much more to learn that way. Yeah. And I did a, a series on generations and uh, spoke to uh, the boomer uh, X, Y, and Z generations. And one of the things I think that I've found through that experience was just that I, I asked those individuals, do you have friends and acquaintances or, or friends primarily? Uh, among the generations and they all did mm. and i think that's why they're successful in their aging is because of that so hopefully that'll be a lesson we can learn paul as we i hope so yeah and also i'm not convinced that these like 55 plus communities i mean while there's some some advantages to that it's like but then we're just hiding behind a gate with all the other people who are over 55 like how is that intergenerational mm. you know so we have to sort of shake up the industry i think yeah you have to absolutely well, Paul, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank uh, you, Gary. And I, again, I'm in awe of your of the Our Build Voices series that you do for that one in the book. You, truly amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle presented by me, Gary Beagle. Be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton of SignalCast, and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. 
Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible. 